UX Podcast Episode 98. Hello and welcome to UX Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm James Roy Lawson. And I'm Paradox Boom. And today we are coming well as live well we're live we're living all the time but we're around um, from uh, we're up from business to buttons yep um in stockholm all day um, all day um this is a conference that you heard us mention a few times now in recent um, months mm-hmm. um organized by in use here in sweden and um there is an absolute fantastic day of speakers ahead um and the audience uh 850 people mm. which is huge for a ux event in sweden yeah and it's um, and for once it's all English speaking as well, yeah. which is which makes us excited because it means we um, well we can cover it better. <laughs> yeah, actually, and more people will be interested, and we can talk to more of the speakers as well. Yeah, uh, and starting us off today is Karen McGrain. I mean, there are so many good speakers today. I'm finishing off with well one of the biggest names we could possibly finish off with. We're not talking to them. Well, yeah, we're not talking to him, but we're f- uh, he's finishing the day uh, an interview with Steve Wozniak. <gasps> That, um, unfortunately, we couldn't speak to him, but yeah. um, uh, we'll bring you some reflections from his talk. Mm. Shall we um, get into the auditorium? And yeah, um, let's go in there. We are, we're doing our first interview today, and it's none other than Pamela Pavlishak, who just came off stage just a few minutes ago. That's right. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm Thank happy to be here. Thank you for joining us mm. straight off the stage. Mm. Yeah. While it's still, you still got the buzz. <laughs> <laughs> so that adrenaline rush going. Yeah. You've just presented um, The Science of Happy Design. Yeah. So this is kind of a pet project, an obsession almost for me. Over the past couple of years, I've been worried that technology is making people miserable. (laughs) And yet, at the same time, I would see people where technology was making them really happy and had meaning in their life and Mm. was so important to them. Mm. And so I decided to take it on as a fairly large and involved research project. It didn't start out that way. It started just simply, well, what is it? What is it? Observed something amongst Yeah, and I just wanted to follow it up, and it kind of evolved into learning about, well, is happiness important? And after looking at about 250 sites and 8,000 people... You looked at 250 sites, yeah, and then you also surveyed 8,000 people. Well, that, what happened? Was that a web, on, web Yeah, survey? what happened? It's an online study, and yeah. so they are invited to participate, and we're tracking behaviors as they go through and yeah. asking them questions, some open-end right. and some kind of rating questions, and one of those questions was about how do they feel, and we learned from that that happiness maps to like every important metric that we care about likely to return like to to recommend um go you know going to buy something or register for something all these things Mm. and so i was blown away by that but then i realized i didn't really know what happiness meant Mm. (laughs) because i found confusing things too as you will in any data set on the surface about it i mean it sounds quite obvious doesn't it that happier experiences kind of the most successful experiences but then to have the data to back it up exactly and also of course then you have to design or decide what happiness actually means uh, which is sort of which what you did that's yeah, yeah. yeah. so that that was sort of the second phase of this because yeah. you're right it did uh, you know as soon as i saw it i'm like well obviously if you're leaving an experience mm. with a happy feeling mm then that's going to have an impact. And even that to me, I was like, wow, you know, in UX research, we're really focused on in the moment, the experience. We want to observe people as they're interacting. Mm. And we don't think about how important it is to the reflecting self, right? Like Daniel Mm. Kahneman makes this distinction between the experiencing self and the reflecting self. Mm. We don't have a lot of research that that, you know, takes that into account. Mm -hmm. And so that in itself was kind of interesting to me. But then... As you said, I, I tried to find out like, what is really happiness. Like, what does it mean? Is it like, hey, I'm smiling and it's really great. And you had this great <laughs> slide with the, you had Expedia and Hipmunk next yes. to each other, uh, screen dumps. And actually the whole audience thought that, well, Hipmunk, of course, is the one that makes so people happy. Oh, yeah. So yeah. did I. So did I. And yeah. I looked at that and I was like, how can this possibly be? 
And so then by doing more research, I, had, I did all kinds of crazy things. Like I asked people to sketch their favorite site or app. And a lot of people thought I was crazy. From memory. From yeah. memory. Yeah. And a lot of people thought I was crazy. They're like, what are you talking mm. about? Sketch my favorite app. And most of them couldn't. Yeah. They didn't remember much about it. They remembered what they felt. Mm. They remembered sometimes what they did. They remembered mm -hmm. maybe the app icon. Mm -hmm but not much else. So, so they remember the, the, the emotional response plus some basic branding yeah, maybe. Some yeah, some maybe basic, basic details. Mm. And that's really interesting too because what we know from behavioral economics is sort of this peak end rule, right? Like mm, they're going to yeah. remember the high points and the end point. Mm. They're not remembering the end point. Yeah. They're remembering yeah. the starting point. And then that makes me think of like, the back button and how you see people always kind of going back or to going back to the app icon on their screen and how that's that starting point is the sort of the, for, the yeah, trigger yeah. it's a frame of reference mm. for them and so that that was one aspect that i looked at and then i also asked people about uh, about experiences that were positive and to kind of identify the emotions that went with mm -hmm. it. And so one, I left open-ended because I just wondered like, well, what do you feel when you go to your favorite site or app? And then I asked kind of a closed-ended question and used, there, there are other researchers working on, you know, positive emotion and what are all the gradations of that? And mm -hmm. so I used sort of some of that research as a blueprint, but I found that they kind of matched up mm -hmm. and it was things like feeling connected, feeling um, creative, feeling like va I'm validated mm. by this experience. And so happiness wasn't just like, oh, yay, smile, be happy. <laughs> mm, it was yeah. really a lot of meaningful things that I hadn't, hadn't occurred to me at first. It's a more when complex I kinda, yeah, mix it of is. emotions. It is. It's a complex mix of emotions. They're positive emotions, mm -hmm. but there's not just one positive emotion. There's, mm. a, there's a whole bunch of them that mm. come into play. So... You sort of gave us also a map of how to approach this yeah. and the different aspects of happiness. Yeah. Uh, how, I mean, if I follow that model, will that <laughs> mean my site is successful? Will it make you happy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it might make you happy. Uh. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I think it has a greater likelihood too, right? Mm. I mean, some of this, like ease of use, kind of the building block. What mm. we saw from the larger data set is that if people couldn't do basic stuff, if they felt it was difficult to use, if we saw mm -hmm. in the behavioral statistics, like the time um, it took them, it felt like a long time or it just took a long time, they weren't successful, mm -hmm. they would not be happy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was just it. That was a basic. And I think that's, we all get that, right? Mm -hmm. That's something that we're used I mean, to dealing with. That's a, mm -hmm. It's a fundamental. And so that's, you know, it's kind of reaffirming in a way, like, mm -hmm. okay, there's <laughs> a building block. But the other aspects of it, I think, you know, design is never going to be a formula. It's never going to be like, oh, you mm -hmm. just make this feedback loop or you just, <laughs> you know, put up, put up a page that looks like this or you just A-B test it. It's so easy. You know, we'll make it perfect. It's never like that. But I think if we're looking to design to these qualities and then later measure to these qualities mm -hmm. and see, like, are people feeling it? You know, mm. <laughs> are they feeling what we're designing for? And it may amount to developing a kind of emotional blueprint mm. for our sites where we're looking at, well, mm. what are the positive emotions that are a piece of the picture for our mm. users? Is it feeling informed? Is it feeling smart? Is it feeling connected? Is it feeling validated? Is it kind of a mix of a lot of those different things? And then designing for that and, and measuring for that to see if we're on mm. the mark. One quote you had was, we measure a lot of stupid things. <laughs> so <laughs> I think um, what I learned is that we need to be looking at a lot of other metrics that we haven't been looking at as of yet. Yeah, well, you know, we ask people, so how easy was it to use the navigation? Or even things that are widely accepted, like net promoter score mm -hmm. used across the board. What we found, and we asked that question too in our data set, you know, wh how likely would you be to recommend? And we do it on the same scale, but we also asked why. And the why is really interesting, right? Because it's, oh, I don't recommend because I never recommend stuff. I don't recommend because mm -hmm. I don't yeah. know them well enough. I don't mm -hmm. recommend because it's a bank and I'm not going to tell people what to do with their money. Like mm -hmm. there's so many complicated things mm -hmm. underneath that measure that I'm not really sure how useful that is. And so... And all those examples you just yeah. gave actually ties into what you were saying about trust yeah. and respect and 
willingness to actually do something it based on your, your personal values. Mm. You say about I never recommend anything. Mm. Yeah. You, you've taken a oh, a position, and mm. that's what you're going to stick to. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, no, it, that question then is uh, well, it's affected by your own judgments, which is not necessarily the, the design and how happy the design makes you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so I, I mm. think asking people how they feel mm. after an experience—it's something everyone can answer. You're not likely to lie about it. Um, why would you? And even if you, even if a few people did, if you had enough people answering it, you'd get kind of a barometer of like, okay, here's where I'm at. It's not the only thing you should measure by any means, but I think it's a good way for us to determine like, are we getting to where we want to be mm -hmm. with, with the people that are, that are using our site or our app or whatever technology we're creating. Mm -hmm. One of the other things you said towards the end of the talk was um, um, oh you reaffirmed broadening the idea of happiness mm -hmm. um, to be pleasure and purpose, yeah. which I think is a, um, well brings it into the context and, 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 and reminding people mm. that we've got to understand the bigger picture of people yeah. using yeah. product services. Because you kind of made fun of UX. You said we had, <laughs> we had delight and that's it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm a UXer. <laughs> I can poke a little fun at <laughs> all of us, but uh, but yeah, I think that we're thinking of happiness too narrowly, maybe, and we're thinking of delight as just this cute little detail yeah. that we're going to add at the end. We've already done everything. Mm. Let's make a nice error message, or let's make mm. a little cute animation here. And the fact is, people don't really notice those, and they're not remembering those, even if they they did notice those. It may be contributing a little bit. I mean, I did see some examples of that in the research where um, things that are, like Avi was talking about, actually, mm. where you go into a store and a, and a coupon appears for Halloween candy, and you were thinking of buying Halloween candy. I had mm. one respondent say, wow, that was like a magical experience. Mm. And I guess I, that might qualify as as delight. So I think it's still in the mix for some, there. For someone. But I yeah. think for someone else, it could be considered a scary um, experience. <laughs> they could be actually frightened by the fact that yeah. that turned up in that context. And that's an excellent point. I mean, I think the trend right now, out maybe outside of the UX world and, and, and maybe also inside, um, is behavioral design, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And grouping everyone together. And it's like, okay, these people have these behaviors or we want to nudge these behaviors this way. Yeah. And I think what happiness does in a way, it brings it more to the individual, right? Mm -hmm. It's something that we all have different levels of happiness. My 10 is not going to be your 10. Um, you know, there are some individual differences we need to, to contend with when, and, and I think that's a good thing because we need mm. to respect the human beings that are using yeah, exactly. our technologies that we're creating and, mm. and think about mm. them as just that, as, mm. as complicated, amazing, mm. insightful individuals that they are. Which also aligns with the topic of ethics, which also was on the table today in yes. earlier talks. Yeah, mm. yeah, I think so. Because we don't want to mm. feel bad about what we're mm. doing. I mean, that's kind of what brought me to that. I was like, mm. God, I am making everyone miserable. And you can <laughs> see that in your lives. Yeah. You know, all your friends are talking about, oh my gosh, I got to get my kids off of technology. Oh. They're totally hooked. Or you're at dinner and everyone's like, mm. nye, 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 on our phones. You know, you guys can't see that on the mm. podcast, but I was making like little phone <laughs> gestures. <laughs> and, Frantic um, phone gestures. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and and I started feeling personally responsible for this. Like, oh, this is awful. Mm -hmm. um, but I know it doesn't have to be that way. Mm. And I know none of us want it to be that way. We want to feel good about what we're doing. And we are trying. I mean, if there's any force in a company that's trying to make a positive experience, it's the UX team usually, mm. right? We're, we're probably at the forefront of yeah. that. And I think we can continue and evolve that work well that's a beautiful ending note i think <laughs> i think so that's excellent well thank you so much thank yeah. you very much for joining us pamela standing here now with cindy alvers welcome cindy excellent talk thank you thank hello cindy and uh, you work at yammer I which do. i've used quite a lot over the years and i, I, I did a survey way back Oh, about yeah, when, when people yeah. started using Yammer in Sweden, how many mm. were, you, were using it and how they were using it. Mm. That was really cool. Mm. Bef before Microsoft bought it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I've been part of mm. helping companies deal with mm. the onslaught of mm. Yammer, mm. Kind of which was it races ahead of their own strategies and way of thinking internally. Um, and helping them do that in a way that didn't involve banning it, because mm. you can't ban it. Yeah. 
But anyway. <laughs> but tell us a bit about what you do at Yammer and how the, this connects with the talk that you did. Sure. So at Yammer, I run the user research team. And when I came in, the company had been going for a few years. And they actually had a very robust data analytics team. And it was a very data-driven company. And mm. data is great, except when it isn't. Which, <laughs> which is to say, uh, you know, it, it will definitively mm. prove that something you did worked or didn't work. Mm. But it won't tell you why. And it won't tell you what to do next. And so they were a little bit floundering with, you know, having, having a data-driven approach. Actually growing, but feeling like they had no good sense of what customers needed and wanted. And that didn't mean that people weren't asking for features, they were right and left, but they, mm. couldn't, have, they couldn't really rationalize, are these good features? Are these things that people really need? Are these things that people will ask for, but then it will make the product worse, it'll make it harder to use, it'll impede people's freedom of communication. And they said, we just, we need someone to come in and help with that. Look, so be, look beyond the numbers. Yeah, mm. and so I came in and I had tremendous freedom to build up a team to do just that. and. Um, I have a, a big saying that I like to eavesdrop and interrupt, mm -hmm. and we work in an open plan office, so this is pretty easy, so I'll kind of be walking by and hear things and be like, that doesn't seem right, let me, let me help with that. And you know, one of the other non-traditional things is my first hire when I got there was actually a product copywriter because I could see that people were getting all the way through a design process, had features, and then trying to replace placeholder copy with something that an exhausted product manager was writing you know, last, mm -hmm. thing, last thing at night or early in the morning. And it was terrible copy. <laughs> and people think that just because users don't read carefully in products that mm -hmm. it doesn't matter, but of course it does. And so the first thing we did is bring in the product copywriter who was the copywriter for every single project and that achieved two goals. One, that our copy became much better and users became more at ease. But two, that person was able to really notice when projects were stepping on each other's toes or when one project seemed to think they were solving this problem and someone else was actually undoing the good they were doing. Ah, mm. and, and so, you know, we started having this greater ability to step in and be like, wait, why are we doing this? Someone actually had, the, like, we call it Sweden helicopter perspective yes. of, of seeing the product in its full, full view. Yes. Holistic view. Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> exactly. And the other thing she was able to notice was that design became a thing that could be cut when scope was tight. Mm. And we wanted to say, how can we bring this back? Of course, design is incredibly important. And so we did it by adopting a language that everyone was comfortable with, which is hypotheses, which is what I was talking about today. Mm. And you know, initially, a lot of the designers were like, we're creative people. We don't, we don't want to use the language of science. We, we got into this field because we mm. love all the, all the human aspects to it. And I basically said, look, we're, we're the social scientists of this company. We have opinions that are just as strong and just as valid as everyone else's. We need to put them in this format so that they can be validated. And so we've had a great success of pushing forward very design-specific ad additions and changes to the product, which have had measurable impacts. Yeah. And I think the way you put it is, like, the problem is this, uh, these opinion-based debates that occur in every meeting where you yeah. argue about, well, should it be that color or mm -hmm. this color? Or, and you're actually going beyond that and actually testing it <laughs> finally <laughs> instead right. of just arguing about it. Right, and testing mm -hmm. it with a wiser mind frame because I think it's very typical for a data-driven culture to say things like, well, we'll test a red button versus a green button. Hmm. And that doesn't teach you anything about whether red or green is better, it teaches you that in this context, this specific button mm. worked. Same yeah. thing with a word. Someone mm. might say, we'll test one button label. Mm. And if you test a button label and in one place save works, you can't extrapolate that out to say, oh, anywhere there's a button, we'll use save. Or anything mm. that even remotely mm. resembles a save mm. action, we'll <laughs> use save. But that's the way non-UX people tend to formulate hypotheses. Mm. And so we would take those and say, we're not going to test a word. We're going to test a tone. Mm. We're not going to test one color. We're going to test a color palette which was much easier to reason about and build from. Yeah, I was thinking as well with an international product as well, especially when you, if you have it in different languages, then a particular word in one language might yes. work fantastic, but you switch it to another language, and no, you need to do more than just a direct translation. And again, you'd need to text, test mm. in that um, specific market as well to ensure that right. it's just as valid right. as previous. And that also becomes part of the design rigor processes mm. because something that may look good in one context may not look good in others. And we, like many products, have a data-driven product. And it means that in some cases that mock-up might look great. Mm. But in the real world, someone might have 6,000 messages and the badge count for 6,000 looks terrible. 
or yeah. the, the language mm. translation issue, or mm. someone who comes in for their very t first time using it is going to have an uncomfortable experience. Mm. And so we do a lot of, we're going to have a hypothesis around what the average user or the median user sees, but we also need to have supporting little hypotheses around what does the very first time user see or what does an extreme user see because those experiences mm. can't be terrible. Mm. Exactly. How many, how many hypotheses are you running or dealing with at the same time simultaneously? A lot. Uh, there's, there's often a one big <laughs> overarching one, as, right. I, as I talked about in my talk, which is you know, around really the future of the product design, which mm. has to do with how people feel comfortable sharing and collaborating in a workspace. But there'll be small ones to support almost anything. So as I mentioned, color palette might be one. Language tone was another. Uh, having emails that matched our product versus emails that were more playful mm. was another hypothesis, which one, incidentally, um, surprising a lot of folks who thought the consistency would be more important. But people's, consist uh, people's framework for I'm walking and looking on my mobile phone is not the same as I'm sitting in front of my desk with my giant monitor. They don't need to be alike because they're not the same situation. That is really interesting. Yeah. Uh, and how do you feel then about design patterns, which are sort of designed to actually make things look the same, whichever where they're actually implemented? Designed to cut corners because yeah. you're not meant to do the full work every mm -hmm. single time. You reuse. Well, I think there's you know there's mm. there's a time and place, right? The the mm. saying is not the consistency is the mm. hobgoblin of foolish minds. Mm. It's a foolish consistency. Mm. Um, so things that are navigational mm. in nature, things that are task centered. If I can do it the same on my phone as my desktop, you've, you've basically prevented me from having to think extra. Mm -hmm. I'm not paying a thinking tax for a mm -hmm. differentiation. But something that has a different purpose. An email that's essentially a product win back or a marketing spin is not because I came to the product needing to accomplish something. It's we would like to make me feel happier about the product. We'd like to bring me back. That's different than, oh, I need to share this with my team right now. Don't put anything in my way. Let me complete that task. Mm. So I think you can take those contexts in, into consideration. Mm. Um, I, was, I was kind of I was thinking a little bit. That's why I went silent because I, yeah. I was still thinking. But I was thinking about whether um, hypothesis-driven design, whether it works better for established products or it's just as good if you start from scratch. That's what I was playing with. Mm. It's not really yeah. a question. It was more just a... Mm. Yeah. I th well, you know, I, I have a little bit of an opinion on this because mm, I, okay. I do mentor startups a lot. And mm. I think that it's, it might be more that in the beginning, everything, everything is up for grabs. Everything is a hypothesis. Mm. And so you don't know who your market is. You don't know what your business model is. You don't know who your customers are. Those are bigger things to solve first. Mm. So you can think about what the tone of your language is or your color palette later, because if no one's going to buy your product, none of those things matter. Yeah. So it's not to say that design hypotheses don't have a place, but they might be somewhat subjugated under, let's see if there are people who want to buy this thing and have this problem. And then as you start going from here are the bare bones of a solution to putting skin on the solution, that's when you start saying things like, well, based on what we know about our customer, we think they would like an informal, cheerful palette versus they're going to want a look of stately credibility and then you would start testing that as you start build, building out solutions. Yeah, no, I, I buy nice that. answer. Yeah. yeah, good answer. <laughs> we tend to know who our customers are. At, you know, part of Microsoft now, so yeah. they're very known. Our customers are known. They have expectations. So things like, you know, this is what the product's reason for being is is not going to change, mm. even if no. a lot of the interactions are. Yeah, mm. yeah. Your your core core product is pretty set. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Right, interview three of the day. We have Mike Montero. Is that how you pronounce your name? Montero. 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 What's up, guys? Oh, screw it. It's been good. We're having a fantastic day. Are you? Yes. It's an awesome conference. No, I don't sound surprised. I'm sleep deprived. Oh, yeah. What's going on? Tough for you guys to travel across here for the conferences. I know it's a really tough job. <laughs> you know, traveling and speaking in foreign lands. Well, how, how, man, how many speaking engagements do you have in, like, a month? Uh, I don't know. Like, yeah, a couple, maybe yeah. three sometimes. Okay. Yeah. But this is easy. I don't want to complain about my job. <laughs> I just go on stage and yell at people, yeah. <laughs> and they clap. Exactly. Right, and that seems to be your thing and nowadays. That's what people talk about. He's the loud guy, and he's screams at us for being doing the wrong stuff and making the wrong decisions. I'm, I'm, I'm the award-winning guy. Yes. Well, if they stopped doing the wrong things, I would stop screaming at them. So ah. that's pretty easy to fix, <laughs> isn't it? It's the, it's the, the hard, hard, right. hard, yeah. hard school of so, um, parroting. So if you, if you don't want to be yelled at, 
figure out what you're getting yelled at for mm -hmm. and then stop doing that. Mm -hmm. And there is an air of humbleness, humbleness, at least in your talks, because you sometimes admit to having done exactly the same mistakes. Oh, I've done all of this terrible yeah. stuff. Your, um, your presentation today was, um, was 13 ways designers screw up client presentations. Yes. Which I, I, I like the way you, um, you, you pivoted that to seven ways um, and an advert for your workshop tomorrow. Well, they gave right. me 20 minutes. Yeah. So you don't get 13 reasons in 20 minutes. It's it's <laughs> you get that in 40 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Tufton's a job of quite a lot. So I figured I would, I would rather do less of them and do them well than try to cram all 13 of them in there. Mm. I, um, I really liked your talk this morning when I really liked the fact that it was, packed, it was um, basically um, coaching about meetings and how to do good meetings wrapped up in an entertaining 20-minute presentation. Well, I mean, you... Apply, applicable to everyone, not just designers. That's sure. That's my thing there. I mean, we do all of this work, and I mean, we do, we, everybody has their own way of doing it, but mm. I mean... You, it, it all involves some sort of research, some sort of strategy, and then some sort of execution. And at several points along the way, you have to put this work in front of your client. And, you know, hopefully it's not the first time they're, they're seeing it. Hopefully you've been working with your client along the way. But at some point, you're going to have to present it to, you know, the person who gives the big okay, mm -hmm. the person who signs the check. And you can't just put stuff in front of people and go like, eh, 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 <laughs> what do you think? I mean, you have to like lead them along the path. Like, okay, here's, here's what we found out in the last three months while we've been working. Mm. Here's what your clients were telling us. Here's what your own people were telling us. Here's what we've discovered. And here's what we did with it. And here's why we believe this is right. And here's why we believe this is going to meet all of your goals. And yeah, I mean, you have to... You, you have to convince them of that and you have to sound excited about what you've been doing. Mm -hmm. And you also have to be humble enough to be, to, to, uh, to be proven wrong mm -hmm. because that is a fantastic time to be proven wrong. I'd rather be proven wrong in one of those presentations than you know, four months later when the work launches and flops. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you have to, you ha it's a balancing act of presenting with confidence, but also accepting feedback with confidence and making sure that it's the right kind of feedback. Like, I don't like it. It's shitty feedback. It tells me absolutely nothing. Mm. Uh, we tried this three years ago, and it didn't work. Do you, think do you think things have changed so much that it will work now? And what makes you feel that? What, what makes mm. you think that? Mm. Mm. That's awesome feedback, and I better have an answer for that. But at the same time, it's like, I, didn't, I, could al it, I could also say, I didn't realize that you had tried this three years ago, and that's a failure on our part. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what, changed, what happened three years ago. And you, you could, there's a very confident way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. also yeah. very, you know. It's an important lesson, I have to say. Very helpful. Yeah. I th that's an excellent point, I think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not, I mean, confidence isn't about faking your way through it. Mm. It's about, you know, Making sure your client realizes that you've, you've one, you've done your homework, you, you're presenting things that you can stand behind, and that you're also very excited about finding out things you don't know, mm. and making sure that you can incorporate those. Because the goal, the goal is is to put together the best solution possible, mm. and if you're being handed evidence that leads to an e to an even better solution than the one that you that you have now, that's fantastic. So you should be open-minded about that as well. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So we there's a difference between confidence and ego. Yes. I mean, mm -hmm. most times. I mean, most times when you see w when you see a a, a client or a, a designer shooting their mouth off in front of a client, what you're getting is ego. It's the, what I, I'm not talking about. Somebody getting up there and going, "I'm right because I'm always right." Mm -hmm. I mean, that's bullshit. I'm talking about somebody who, you know, is standing there with, you know, uh, suitcases full of evidence mm. and is, you know, confident that they've done all of the, the homework and is now presenting that with confidence. Yeah. And that's I, it's a really, really important point to make because I think that that's where the assumption is that when you're talking, it's a, the assumption is that people, the designers are doing the research, are doing their homework and have a case to make. Right. But then I've see, witnessed so many presentations where, with art directors who come in there with their scarf around their neck and their, this air of confidence 
but they haven't done the homework, but they actually managed to convince the client that they're right anyway. I have such a good time cutting those people down to shreds when I see them. It well, is so much fun because you can always tell mm, the difference. Mm. And it is so easy to cut them down at the knees. Mm. It's very pleasant. You should do a talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> that would be excellent. Yeah, twist your own the way. Yeah. yeah. I think no, when, I mean, w when a client hires me, I work for them. And my job is to ensure their success. And sometimes they are the obstacle in front of that success. So, I mean, you have, to, you have to be really careful because it's not easy telling somebody who's writing you a check that, you know, this idea that you have for this thing is wrong. Um, you have to do that in a very nuanced way. You have to develop a relationship with them and you have to, you know, sometimes come at it sideways and you have to get them to feel comfortable enough that they realize that what you're after is the same thing that they're after Yes. And maybe they should trust this, that you might have a better way of getting there than they do. Mm. But you can't, I mean, you can't burst into a room like an asshole and go, you're wrong, now pay me. That's just not going to mm. work very well. Mm. I mean, that's the key thing there about relationships. I mean, that's, um, that's one of the, the prerequisites, I think, from the, the, the list you gave this morning was that you've you're the right person for the job in the first place. Right. Like you've got that good ground relationship because I've been, I've been in meetings over the years where you, you realize very early on, it's like, oh no, this, this wasn't the right guy for the job or the guy well, for the job. Um, one of the things that got cut from this talk because of uh, time constraints that we will address at the workshop tomorrow is, I mean, one of the questions I get uh, fairly often is, well, what do you do when a client just demands that you that you do the thing that they want to do even though it's wrong. That carousel is going to appear right. on the website. And, I mean, the answer is that you don't hire that client. Yeah. You don't work with that client. Mm -hmm. you, you need, and when we're evaluating who we want to work with, like they're deciding if they want to work with us, but we're also deciding if we want to work with them. Mm -hmm. And if we're talking to a client, we realize this guy's really not going to listen to what we have to say. He's just he has this thing stuck in his head. He just wants somebody to build that thing for him. Like a carousel. Right. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pass on that because that's going to be a really crappy relationship for everybody. He's going to wonder why these people that I'm paying aren't building the thing that I want. I'm going to be telling him that's not really what we do. And the whole thing's going to go terrible for both parties. No one's going to be happy in that situation. And there's very little chance of it ending with a mm -hmm. successful thing at the end. So you don't work with those people. Mm. There's going to be somebody else out there that they're the perfect client for. Yeah. So we encourage them to go find that person. Mm. And there it's a matter of, of having confidence as an organization that you don't need to say yes to every deal. We also, yeah, you need to be confident that there's another job right behind that one. Yeah, exactly. You did start with the, your job is not to become the client's best friend and you're not supposed to be buddies. In some sense to build respect and that confidence in your work, sometimes you actually, I feel, have to build that sort of relationship, maybe not best buddies, but that's something I, I at least with my clients, I, I think that having that friendship is somewhat important as well. Well, I actually end up friends with most of my clients. Yeah. I still get along with mm -hmm. you know, the vast majority of them. We you know, still exchange email and hang out. They pass us more clients. I mean, our yeah. old clients yeah. are the basis of all our new, new clients. Ones, yeah. Yeah. It's just you need to you need to develop boundaries from the very beginning that like we can get along and that's awesome if we get along, but you're also hiring us to do this thing. Mm. And I am not going to um, cut corners on doing this so that we can be better buddies because that's going to suck. Yeah. Mm. Like I'm going to build this right. We're going to argue about it because mm. buddies get to argue. Um, we're going to argue about this, we're going to do it right, and then we're going to be friends forever. <laughs> and you know what? We'll be really good friends because you'll get a raise and a promotion when this thing launches, which means you'll be buying beer. <laughs> yeah. like Excellent. I think it's pretty sound business ethics. Who's buying beer tonight then? <laughs> Always the client. <laughs> In use. <laughs> All right, guys, i got to get back to Yeah, story. thanks so much for joining thanks us. For joining All right, us. thanks this for having fun. me on your show. Yeah. Thanks a lot. All right. Right, I think it's time to summarize the day. 
Yes, we're at the end of the day of um, From Business of Buttons 2015. It's been a fantastic day of talks. And we're joined yeah. to help us um, uh, summarise, I come with highlights from the day, um, by Ben Sauer from Clear Left, who has been um, sat in the audience absorbing the conference too. Yes, and I've had a really awesome day. Um, I really enjoyed today. Uh, it's been lovely to be in Stockholm, and I just want to thank everybody involved uh, in use and all the speakers today. I've, I've, it's just been a really wonderful day, so I just want to say thank you to everybody who's made it happen. And the conference in one word. <laughs> Ooh, um, <laughs> I'm glad you asked him that. You see, you, they, they, don't, they don't know you asked um, yeah. I know. that. It was me. You know what? I'm going to say um, reflective. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I think um, what I've observed, perhaps in events in our industry post-NSA, is that the conversation about ethics and the future of what we're doing has been increasingly present. And, you know, we caught bits of it today, and I'm really glad that we're having that conversation as a community. Yeah. yeah. I think ethics is a, is a good word. We've, um, we've noticed on the podcast, I mean, that's coming up more and more, and we, we ourselves are reflecting yeah. um, on the ethics. And it seems to be related to everybody reading more about psychology and, mm. and realizing that you can really affect people with the way you design, and sometimes it feels like you may be pushing people too far, not or maybe doing it in a way that's perhaps not something that, that a way you would act in regular life, probably pushing people too far. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, this morning, the, um, the first... Um, in a presentation was um, content in a zombie apocalypse, apocalypse um, Karen McCrane. Um, do you want me to pause that after each one pair or do you want no, to get through the whole lot? <laughs> <laughs> no, pause with that. Right. So she started us off with uh, uh, reflections on uh, how to like chunk content into something that will fit into many different devices. That's what I remember about it. She was thinking, talking about uh, Chunks rather than blobs of content. Karen was basically mm. throwing the ball up in the end, saying that we can't, we, we can't um, carry on focusing on devices. Mm. You can't, not individual devices. Yeah. Yeah. But also, yeah, I also think that the, the highlighting how difficult it is to overcome the old metaphors, mm. words that we carry around with such a strong legacy, like pages. And mm. Oh yeah, she yeah, had a story a about the laser printer and WYSIWYG and we're killing WYSIWYG now. Yeah, yeah. And, and sort of yeah. the irony yeah. that that was cra- that, yeah. that metaphor and that method comes from Xerox Park, which is mm. actually mm. kind of ground zero for so many innovations that we yes. use today. Yeah. Yeah. Now the whole WYSIWYG <coughs> thing was um, that was well, that was great because I've nagged, nagged about that too, that we, you know, CMSs have a lot to, to um, a lot of blame mm. to carry. Mm. The fact that we're still very much focused on our publishing efforts now, when we design websites, fair enough, we put a lot of effort now into very, very good, worthy aspects of, t- of creating mm. good experiences. But then it gets left over to organisations, and many organisations are really geared up mm. to be content producers sat behind desktops with CMSs that cater mainly for mm. desktops, and they forget very quickly that it's not that simple. No, mm. and I think in, in a couple of the other talks, we, you know, we heard people like Kim and Lisa really reflect quite deeply on, you know, what, what is the scope of design? So... That's Kim Goodwin um, um, and Lisa Reichardt. Yes, and um, you know, perhaps if we're going to overcome some of these old metaphors like pages, then we have to attack kind of the culture, really, and how do we attack that design problem, and how do we overcome some of those old assumptions? And you know, Lisa mentioned the importance of um, culture and how we carry assumptions in culture and how we can start tackling the surface, if you like, which is the language to, to, to attack the kind of deeper assumptions about what we should be doing yeah. in our businesses. And Kim Goodwin, of course, got into the, the organisational change aspect as well. Um, mm. um, yeah. In her, um, in her talk. Um, yeah. The journey mapping. Which we, yeah, exactly. Journey mapping. We talked about uh, that uh, with her a couple of months ago yeah. uh, on X podcast. Mm. Uh, I liked how she brought up also uh, touch points, and we shouldn't be calling it touch points because <laughs> we don't like <laughs> to touch <laughs> that lot. <laughs> she doesn't like to be touched. But also the, f- the, the point about we're always thinking about our touch points. We're thinking about where we connect with the consumer or the customer uh, or the human in the other end. And we're not thinking about their experience. They, what we think is a touch point may not actually not be a touch point for them. It's the journey, not the destination, is mm. the name of her talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's um, some things that we, have, we don't consider part of the journey. Uh, they do, and yeah. we consider them. Mm-hmm. Um, in her example, in, wasn't it them booking, she was booking travel and like the expenses receipts at the end, doing your expenses claim at the end of it, isn't normally considered part of your, your travel booking experience from a 
a commercial viewpoint, yeah. but from a personal viewpoint, if you're doing business travel, oh my God, yeah, it's one of the most important aspects. <laughs> of how the, how yeah. the hell do we get all these receipts into the system that we've got elsewhere? Yeah. yeah. Um, the, um, we, we can't take these in order because there's no. be too many to run, but um, Karen um, McCrane, of course, she, um, she does um, her workshop, I think it was today, yesterday, sorry, um, does a workshop with um, Ethan who's getting interviewed just to our left and we interviewed last yeah. month and the they have a podcast <laughs> they have a podcast together <laughs> as well um, but, um, but that, that works well when you've got both of them on the same um, um, program so that um, Karen in the morning can build the, mm. build the ground for talking mm. about um, breaking content free from design mm. and then Ethan come in in the, in the afternoon and talk about the, the design details that we've got fat web pages that are far too many megabytes for what we need to Oh yeah, he and he had excellent excellent examples from uh, from Africa and the mobile use there, where people are actually have more access to mobile phones than they have to electricity and stuff. Uh, and uh, we the b web pages basically are just too too large today in the way that they are accessed in uh, in a lot of countries, uh, and it's just going the wrong way fast. I actually uh, gave the example of um, Internet.org, which is Facebook's um, um initiative, initiative yeah. um, oh yeah. to, to to make the internet more um, accessible to um, uh, third world countries or, or Facebook more mm -hmm. um, accessible and I'd read about that the other day and I was just absolutely astounded that it was uh, so ridiculously non-mobile website mm -hmm. yeah. and you think about the whole venture the whole idea <laughs> I mean god <laughs> I mean didn't anyone point it out to them <laughs> Yeah, who knows? Who knows what's <laughs> going on behind closed doors that, that <laughs> makes those decisions? I, I fixed I width three point four meg website, I think it was, aimed yeah. at people in third world countries who don't have broadband connections. Well, I guess who who was it aimed at? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think we. I think I've just so answered my own question really. A marketing yeah. initiative, yeah. rather. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the media has written about it. I, I Ethan's <sighs> thought was kind of one of my favourite kinds of talk because you know he started off very big picture, you know, cartography, mm. maps, philosophy. Mm. But then actually there are some hugely important kind of practical details in that talk as well, mm. you know, getting down to, um, you know, at clear left we run kilobyte budgets mm. and we try to get the page, have a target yeah. page size yeah. in mind. So you guys mm. came up with a performance budget idea, didn't you? Um, yes. I, I think, think that's so, uh, yeah. have you even got credited with that in the talk today. Yeah. Um, I had no idea it was an original idea from us, but um, <laughs> yes, I was aware we were using it. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> yeah. so uh, we, we just made it yours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I do know the people involved that, that yes, that Ethan mm. was talking about. Yeah. I'd like yeah. to touch upon uh, Iran's talk also, uh, Iran from Adaptive Path, because I think she actually broke the flow a bit with her talk. Uh, and uh, thinking about it more and more afterwards, I think it was actually just beautifully how she did it because everyone else is talking about separating content and form uh, Karen McRain with the chunking mm -hmm. uh, all the way to, to Ethan with, the, with how we build websites for mobile but she was saying that the experience of content is uniquely well it, it is really tied together with how it is presented and she was talking about beauty which, which apparently was a very controversial she gave a story about how even the speakers had debated about it uh, last night and we talk too little, little about beauty, I think, uh, in that sense. We, we talk a lot about content first, uh, and that content has to live in many forms, but we don't talk about how important it is to actually display that content in a beautiful manner in the end, because it is actually part of the experience, the way it looks mm. when you're consuming it. Yeah, at the same time, mm. though, um, I mean, this, this morning, you know, we talked to Pamela, mm -hmm. um, one of the speakers here, and, and about she said happiness. about how about happiness and how, mm. how when she asks people to, to draw their websites, uh, they don't remember anything basically about them. They remember maybe a couple of bits of branding and then I think what they did or something, but they don't remember the beauty. Sure, the yeah, but that's not fair because I mean, well, you couldn't re uh, replicate the Mona Lisa, but you could still think it's beautiful. I mean, <laughs> I my artistic skills are better than that. I'm sure I could. <laughs> no, you know, you're right. Yes, I mean, but it's, it's, all, it's the consciousness side of it. I mean, and it's, also it's, it's about sub subjectiveness. Because we're talking yeah. about measuring and hypothesis-driven mm. design, and we need to have metrics in place. But some, th some part of it is subjective. And that also, I think, ties into what Pamela is saying about happiness. It is somewhat subjective. We can measure the subjective part as well, which is probably mm. what Iran would, pr would probably prefer mm. uh, with her sense of... It's really really beautiful I, was stuff. I was around... Um, um, how do you pronounce the surname? Nar uh, Nargis. Nargis is Nargis. how the I The kiss for beauty is yeah. in her talk in this afternoon. Mm. I think there's, there's a really, I guess one of the reasons that is so pertinent to now is I guess the lean movement is really pushing back 
in, against, you know, design up front kind of thinking, but mm. this very kind of stripped down approach, very, I guess, utilitarian mm. about hitting the target really fast, using prototypes, getting to answers quickly and not mm. spending hours designing necessarily finely crafted things. Mm. Mm. There's a, I think there's a little bit of a tension in our industry there going on right now. Mm. But I think, um, I think she framed it well in terms of what it can add. But I think designers must not forget that it is not the core of design, I guess, is the, the lesson there. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's um, that's a good point. And uh, yeah. I mean, part of industrial design has always been that it doesn't ha just have to be useful, it also has to be beautiful. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. The, um, now it, it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be a summary of, this of today if we didn't um, mention the um, the final interview rather than a talk. It was an interview, yeah, which um, was um, something that I think everyone really really enjoyed. Maybe think about it now with the design thing. You um, haven't even mentioned who who the interview was with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who was it with? Steve Wozniak. Yeah, yeah. Um, Steve was even pointed. There was a picture of, a pi of um, an early um, um, computer uh, put up on a slide at one point. And oh yeah, and he, and he, 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 he directed about the beautiful and the design of it, and he, he admired the, um, the, the, the the simplicity of it was as simple simple as, simple as you could get in the seventies of this yeah. particular. With the material design exactly you had in place. Yeah, he couldn't remember exactly yeah. which computer it was. It was an eight. It was the ABC eighty. Was the ABC eighty? Yeah. That's what it was. Um, well, he couldn't remember which one it was, but he said it was. It was. It was two, I mean, imagine two huge eight-inch disk drives attached to the right <laughs> of the screen. Of we, the had, we, had, we had one of those machines at school oh. with an eight-inch eight floppy drive. It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> they, f they, they actually flew really well across the classroom. Oh my! <laughs> you would remember that. <laughs> they, we had eight, well, there was an eight-inch floppy machine yeah. at our school. Mm. Nice. I didn't have those actually. No, we. we I don't think it worked. Mm. I mean, that's why I remember throwing the disks around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I I really enjoyed. Um, Steve's talk, I think, well, the in interview, interview yeah. rather, yeah. Um, particularly hearing that kind of one of his main sort of philosophies was finding simpler ways to do mm, things. And yeah. he mentioned being in ex uh, inspired by, designed by a company called Data General, who right. figured out a way to use fewer chips and less circuitry. Oh, yeah. mm. um, and I've just been reading a book about that, actually, called The Soul of a New Machine, oh, which is okay. all about... Um, uh, yeah, I think it was written in 1982. A journalist, Tracy Kidder, spent a number of years in the company dis uh, looking at their culture and how they were innovating. And I highly recommend it to anyone uh, in our industry to read. It was really interesting that kind of his philosophy on yeah, efficiency mm. and good design mm. all came from kind of reading how they'd simplified how code was written. Mm. I, I, I found that really interesting. Mm. I, I think it was, just, it was absolutely fascinating listening to, to Was uh, be interviewed for an hour because I mean, you, just, you just get totally overwhelmed by how clever the guy is. I mean, yeah. you can, his brain just basically just oozes out all the time. You just know, this guy is super clever. Mm. And, and I admire the fact that he's managed to maintain mm. a life, um, uh, yeah, despite his wealth and, and notoriety, mm. that um, he still does a lot of stuff that he wants to do. Mm. Mm. I think yeah. we, we were mentioning ethics earlier. Yeah. I was so pleased to hear him talk about the rejection of mm. wealth for its own sake and yeah. going back to being a teacher in secret. That was eight very inspiring. Eight years yeah. he was teaching in secret yeah. at primary school, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, who, who has the guts oh. to do that? Very few of yeah. us. Really interesting. He was teaching yeah. seven days a week, mind you. Yeah. That's insane. That's not just guts. I mean, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> unhealthy. That that's well, that's <laughs> a, well, it's, <laughs> it's obviously a passion, though. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. exactly. His, his intelligence, his mm. um, humility and his passion mm. um, just oozes mm. through. Um, mm. like really he inspiring in, mon in many, many different ways. It was quite touching to talk about his father's way of teaching. Yeah. Clearly a, an amazingly strong influence. And as somebody who's just had kids recently, it really got me thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. He, exactly. He reflected on um, aspects of his way, father's way of mm. um, explaining things to him, introducing mm. things to him, um, and how he mm. was then um, reusing that knowledge he'd learned from his father to teach his own kids or introduce his own kids into um, Yeah, and also not, not sort of teaching him in a very fixed way, but introducing multiple perspectives. Mm. I, I, I suppose helped a young Steve Wozniak look at problems from exactly. very different angles. Not but giving the answers. You don't yeah, give yeah. the answers, you, don't you give the tools exactly. to find the answers. You don't kill the motivation. Yeah. He made two points that, I really, that really uh, stuck with me. And one was what he was saying when he, when he designed the, the hard, no, the disk drive. Yeah. Uh, he said, sit down and think, how should, you, how should this be done? Don't look at how other people have done it. Just think about how you should do it. And that really p makes you think about, well, all this user research, research we're doing, is it always good? Is there stuff we mm. should be thinking about first before we do the user research? I think mm. even though we use, we talked about earlier today as well, with design patterns mm. and the reuse of, of various design mm. patterns, that um, 
yes, we do it because it, so, it supposedly saves us money. But just like computers in many aspects of life now make us lazy. Yeah. Because we don't, we don't think about why it is like it is, because we don't have to go through the research, we don't have to go through the process. We just say, well, that works, so we'll, we'll just use that one. Mm. <laughs> or that pattern, that thing. And the other point he made was the one about that motivation is sometimes more important than knowledge. That actually he was so, so motivated to do something, he didn't know how to do it, but he wanted to do it. So he learned to do it. And in the sense that he was doing it uh, in, in a way that he just imagined the best way to do it, then the motivation brought a better solution than if he had been taught to do it by someone else, mm. which would have really, he wouldn't have as, m- as many choices to go ahead with. Yeah, mm. he'd have been blinded by yeah. experience and yeah. learning. I mean, that's very in line with Apple philosophy that we've yeah. probably heard so much about from Steve Jobs, you know, the Buddhist concept of the beginner's mind, mm. seeing problems mm. from a completely mm. fresh angle. Mm. Yeah. yeah, his creativity would have been stifled or paralyzed yeah. mm. in a modern environment. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's terrible to think about, actually. It is. What a, note, what a note to finish on. It is. <laughs> that would be nice. Let yeah. me finish on by saying that. Um, yeah. that Steve, was he, um, was he, um, he, he went into the whole Terminator doomsday, you know, the, um, Terminator scenario of kind of, you know, there'd be these great computer overlords who are going to mm. take over and um, have us as pets. The computers already won 200 years ago. That's what he said. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of right. Huh. I think this was a great summary. So... Thanks so much, Ben, for joining us. It was Thank you very great much. fun. It was very really nice talking yeah. to you guys. Yeah. Thank you. And that's that. Thank you for joining us from Business to Buttons. It's today. been a fantastic day. I mean, yes. the, the quality of the speakers has been mind-blowing. And the organization has been excellent. Yeah. The guides for the speak. I mean, there are so many things to yeah. talk about, really about the logistics as well. I'm really impressed by what Inus has put together today. Mm. Uh, so... And thank you very, very much um, to Pamela Pavlishak, Mike Montero, Cindy Alvarez, and then Ben Sauer. Yeah, who helped us to to sum up everything. He had notes and stuff. Yeah, he he was (laughs) organized. It helped. (laughs) And um, uxpodcast.com, you will find um, show notes Mm. um, to the program. Yeah. And do sign up for our uh, backstage emails. Uh, just go to uxpodcast.com and on the top of the site you can sign up for emails and you'll be the first to know when events like this are being covered and uh, well, it's just, just if you want to know what types of shows are coming up. and We're coming up to show 100. We haven't really decided what we're doing then, but it'll be just, just having sh- 100 shows is just loads of fun. It's our fourth birthday as well, around at the same time. Oh, yeah, that's right. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm tired. I'm going out for a beer now (laughs) 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 to to get energized. Uh, So uh, just remember to keep moving. And see you on the other side. (laughs) 